What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Look, I'm so appreciative of the content that we create day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year for the past five plus years. You know, it's been a journey. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been rocking with us. If you didn't know, I'm going to tell you right now, we exist to center and amplify black and brown folks at work. And we do that by having really frank, authentic conversations. Think about like the conversations you have with a friend or a colleague or a mentor or aspiring mentor or mentee over drinks or coffee or whatever. It's when you're really having those real conversations about career and life and navigating the workplace. I was not privileged to have a ton of those conversations, but but the five that I did <laughs> really blessed me. Now I'm playing. I had more than five. I mean, come on. I've been working for a while, so I've had more than five. It feels like I've had like I feel like I can count the really authentic conversations on one hand. And I just remember years ago thinking about what does it look like to bottle that up and make it accessible to thousands of people because everyone doesn't isn't privileged to have someone that looks like you pull you aside over coffee or just on the side and give you the real talk and that's what living corporate is all about yes you're listening to the flagship show but living corporate is a network of shows and everything that we do is based around authentically centering and amplifying historically marginalized voices at work by investigating interrogating the systems and imagining a better more equitable place to work. Yes, we fall into the diversity, equity, inclusion space, but we don't really use that language like that because a lot of that has been co-opted, watered down and centered around people that don't really need it. We're trying to have authentic conversations every single day that center and amplify the people that actually need to be centered and amplified which are black and brown people, black and brown women, black and brown queer folks, black and brown trans folks, black and brown non-binary folks, black and brown disabled folks, black and brown first generation people, right? Black and brown folks, period, right? That's what we're trying to do. And so thank you so much. I'm excited about the conversation you're about to listen to. We'll be right back. This podcast, Living Corporate, it's brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether you're just starting out or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website, engage with the audience, and sell anything from products to content to time, all in one place on your terms. Let me tell you something. Y'all might not know this, but Living Corp, we started our whole journey on Squarespace. My website. ZacharyNunn.com It's on Squarespace I can't tell you how much I appreciate It's Fluid Engine The ability to create world class templates and design It's very intuitive Incredible We have custom merch through our Squarespace We have an incredible asset library So I can always mix it up Switch and swap It's super dope And the fact that you can host all types of content Video, audio, all types of media You can put all on your Squarespace I can't recommend it enough If you want to learn more about Squarespace, check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com backslash corporate to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
Huntsman Harris. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Look, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, um, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, it's interesting. Um, Of course, like, I I just want, I want to talk to you. I can't remember how we got connected, but um, I'm really excited about your your book, Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. Um, And I think beyond talking about your book, I'd like to talk to you about your work, right? Like, what for you inspired you to even talk and engage uh, on the subject of and the realities and experiences of black women in, in education? Like, where did that come from? Personal experience, honestly. Um, and you, that's the cool thing about sociology. My PhD is in sociology is that it's about the world around us, right? And the way that people experience it and the way that particular societies are structured and the cultures that they develop and, and how um, that impacts people differently by race, by gender, by religious identity, all of those things. But I will say that when I was in graduate school, when I was in my doctoral program, and this was in the you know mid-2000s, um, I was actively sort of pushed away from studying experiences of people like myself. Um, But simultaneously as that was happening, I was also finally getting the language to understand my own experiences, right? And be able to start to analyze and explain the experiences of people who look like me, right? So my dissertation topic actually um, was on the career trajectories of Black women um, living and working in Minneapolis and St. Paul, which is where I'm from. And that was totally born out of watching my mother go through things and sort of wanting to be able to study it from this sort of scientific perspective. And so, you know, I got into a tenure track position and, you know, much like when I was in school as a student, experienced racism and um, and microaggressions and discrimination and all of that stuff. And, you know, like a lot of Black women like me, Black people, I just talked about it with my people, right? My parents, my sister, uh, my family members. And it was actually my mother who said to me one day when I was complaining uh, about the discrimination that I had experienced um, in the workplace, that I should write about it, right? And I should say that my mother is one of those Black women, she's a, you know from the boomer generation, who just thinks that you should be able to, to do anything right so I, i'll have an idea and she's like well you should see if oprah oprah would like mom, that that's my right? mom it's like, all mm, day ma'am. long <laughs> that's my mom all day long 100%. it just cracks me up because she just thinks you know it must be easy to get in front of these people or or and or so if it's not if, easy you can do it i can do it right because i've done all these other things i have a phd like why shouldn't i uh be able to make these sorts of connections and so when she originally said you know i should write a book about this i was like okay mom yeah i'm gonna write a book about it that sounds (laughs) and then i started to think about it a little more and i just got my notebook out and started sort of writing down things that i had experienced and sort of thinking through those experiences with 
the theory that I had been engaging with for other research and it just clicked for me, um, and this was maybe in year two on the tenure track, that this was where I needed to be going, right? And and not because um, other folks aren't doing it. There are you know lots of uh, Black women in academia that are writing about our um, experiences in higher education and, and more broadly, you know, institutional racism in higher education and sort of what that means for Black students. But I thought that it was important to put my experiences down to corroborate those experiences with the historical experiences of Black women in higher education over time. Because as I was experiencing those things, and when I didn't have the language for that, I internalized that stuff as me, me problems. Some, some, some right? personal <laughs> shortcoming or failure or inadequacy, right? Exactly. I, I must have done something wrong. I misunderstood what the expectation was here. I wasn't good enough, you know, to right. to get this grant or get into the school or, or whatever. Um, and I wanted to be able to reassure black girls and black women that it's not about you, mm. right? It is about the system. It's systemic. When we say that things are systemic, we mean that it's meant to feel personal, right? It's meant to feel individual as a way to mask the fact that this is actually a much bigger and, and broader problem. Yeah. So that, and, and that's why I wrote it in a very um, easy to read, you know, it's, this isn't an academic sort of language type book. And I imagine it for 16, 17, 18 year old girls in high school and you know, 20, 30, 40 year old women in college and graduate school working in higher education, we all have experienced these things. And I wanted to, to just say that, right, without any shame and um, and let people know that there's no shame in that. You know, it's interesting. I, I was watching a video uh, recently of um, a young woman. Like, I'm, she's not a young, I mean, she was a college student, she was a track athlete. And uh, she was running like the 400 and like the video was of this white man who like walked up on her and was like, yo, we going to race. Like, I think I can beat you. And he, and she like smoked. I think she ran like a 58, which is like for people who know track, ain't he? Yeah. That's like crazy for like a regular civilian. She was like, yo, I'm, I'm just kind of like warming up. Like I'm really, I'm jogging. Right. Right. I'm not actually (laughs) even going as hard as I could. And I smoked you. Um, and, and then we also then see, and I want to, going somewhere with the fact that we're also seeing Bill Ackman well-known mega donor uh, activist donor billionaire entrepreneur um, who like established himself as like an expert in academic plagiarism Um, I'm curious (laughs) like do do you see uh, a met like do you see the a through line of men particularly white men um, asserting themselves as experts in spaces with academics and expert and like with people who are actually trained and like who have studied for years in these spaces. Have you experienced that in your career? And, and what advice would you give to black women, to black and brown women more broadly around how to even navigate like the audacity of that? 
<laughs> the audacity of whiteness, <laughs> sure. right? Which is something that uh, we talk about a lot in my sort of space in, in sociology. And absolutely, right? Um, I remember when I was in graduate school, I did my doctorate at the University of Minnesota, and I suppose I can tell this story because this faculty member is not there anymore. Okay. Um, but I was in um, uh, a graduate class mm-hmm. and um, I wrote a paper that was born out of some very superficial, like trivial archival analysis that I had done in the library, looking at different ads in um, old Esquire magazines and old, um, uh, was it self? I can't remember what the the women's version um, of that was that I was looking at. I wrote this paper, I turned it in, um, and the professor, white man, asked me to stay after, uh, a few weeks later, after he had handed everyone's papers back. Again, this is the mid-2000s, so we're handing things in (laughs) and getting them back. Um, And uh, he asked me to stay after, and he accused me of fabricating the work, essentially. Um, His argument was that it was too good. Essentially, the the paper was too good. The analysis was too well done. How could I have possibly completed this work? And I was I was flabbergasted. And and honestly, that is a paper that I still have not published. And every year, I say to myself, I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to you know try to get it out there for publication. Yeah. But there are all these like negative feelings around it because this person just could not believe that a a young black woman, I was probably 25, 26 at the time, could have done this work, mind you, in a doctoral program, in one of the top sociology programs in the country, right? Um, So it shouldn't have been, in a cohort of 12, I think we started out with 12, right? So they picked 12 people in the country (laughs) to be in this program, and then expected that the one black woman in the cohort would not do well, right? And my doctoral experience, and and there are some faculty who were great, um, and I love them, and they know who they are, and the rest, you know, were very much, in a lot of ways, waiting for me to fail, right? I I started in a cohort of 12 in in 2008, and um, there was one black woman and one black man, everyone else was white, and the black man uh, left after the first year, which I think was the expectation, and I ended up being the first person to defend my dissertation in the cohort, which is not what they were expecting, right? Um, and, uh, And so that... That experience, again, is just so common for us in not just in higher education, but to your point about the example of the the track runner um, and the white man who challenged her, it, it happens across settings for black women because there is this perpetual dehumanization that's the through line right between um the the black woman being challenged on um on in a 400 and as someone who ran track in high school and never ran the 400 <laughs> one time my uh, coach made me run the 400 because the girl who was supposed to run got sick i was a, a 200 runner mostly mm. 
And I cried afterwards. It was <laughs> so hard. It's the hardest event, um, running event in track, in my, um, in my opinion, sprinting event. Um, and so for a white man to walk up on a woman who is clearly training, right, and suggest that he can beat her um, just because of who he is, right, that audacity of whiteness, that, that audacity only exists if you don't think of the, the people that you're challenging as human, mm. right? And, and Bill Ackerman is, is such an interesting example of this. And I, I laughed when you called him like a, you know, so-called expert in, uh, in plagiarism because that's coming back to bite him, mm. right? So he did all of this um, work to get uh, Claudine Gay out as um, Harvard University's first black woman president in the shortest tenure, only six months. Because of what it turns out were just citation errors. And you're talking about a dissertation that was written in 1997 when most articles, academic articles that would be cited in a dissertation were not digitized. Right. And, and, and there's that. Right. And then the second piece of this is that citation practices in higher education vary. <laughs> like that's the nice way so, to so, say so can it. I, so, can I, so, so that's the part I want to, I mean, first of all, I very much so want to get into uh, to Dr. To Dr. Gay. Um, but like to acknowledge your point around people questioning, like, could you have possibly done this? So it's interesting, right? Because I'm, of course I'm not a black woman, I'm a black man, but I can certainly still empathize with that and relate to that on the, on like uh, from a, from a racial context, perhaps not on a gender context. Um, several times in my, like just, like like grade school career, <laughs> mm. um, I was accused of, hey, who who helped you write this essay or whatever? Who helped you? Um, mm-hmm. I never forget. Like literally, the, what was eerie about what you said unlocked a memory for me. My senior year in high school, I wrote this paper about the um, the cyclical nature of history. That's all. Like mm-hmm. it was like, hey, write a paper about anything. And I'm gonna be honest with you, Doctor Harris. Like I did not take school serious. So I was not even really being serious when I wrote the essay. I was like, let me just write about how history repeats itself. And like, that's really it. You know what I'm saying? Like we're going to, and, and, and like, not only does history repeat itself, but like part of that history that repeats itself is people unwilling to learn from said history, which is why it continues to repeat itself. Like that was really like the core of my paper. And I Mm -hmm. gave it to my teacher who was, who got a, I think he was, he was, he had a PhD in education or in maybe even in sociology. I don't know. And he was like, this essay reminds me of other essays I've seen over the past several years. And I believe that you you lifted a lot of these ideas. Mm. And my mom got involved because my mom is in education. Um, and then my English teacher got involved and he apologized. And then he gave he graded my paper and it was an A. But I, I think like going back to what you said about like um, citation and rules very i have a perspective i'm curious to hear hear your hear your reaction to it is when people started pulling out all these errors around dr gay's work my position was and still frankly is whatever those errors are i don't care because whatever she decided to do was like was again from my outside estimation like very much so likely in line with whatever else the people was doing over there so I'm not saying she copy and pasted nothing. What I am saying is if she copy and pasted something, it's probably in line with the um the uh the cultural context of that of that working environment, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think so. So that is my position. But my challenge to that is: Do you think that black folks in general, and we can double click on black women if we want to? This is not blaming people. I'm just, but I want to be. This is, our tagline is real talk in a corporate world, Doctor Harris. So we don't have a real conversation. You know what I'm saying? All right. Okay. So I think sometimes black folks, black and brown folks, historically marginalized folks, we get lulled into a false sense of security thinking that we can do the same things that our white slash majority counterparts do. And I'm curious, like, I'm curious to get your reaction to that, like around this whole citation thing and whatever, like, do you think that that's something that we have to be mindful of? And if so, what does it look like for us? What does mindfulness really look like? It's a really good point. Right. And I, and I totally agree with you. Um, and oftentimes, especially at the higher levels, I think we're sort of seeing this with like Clarence Thomas right now as well. Right. With this idea that, well, this is what folks in this field are doing. And so I'm sort of following suit. I'm, you know, a part of this culture without remembering, right, that as black people, we are going to be the ones who are ostracized, regardless of what that culture expects or accepts, because we don't actually belong there, right? So we're not going to be given that same benefit of the doubt. The problem with that is it it's this sort of double-edged sword, Mm. right? Where when you are in the moment, in the culture, the expectation is that you are working as a part of that culture, right? So if Mm. if Dr. Gay or or anybody, for example, were to come and say, listen, y'all, these little citation practices y'all got us doing, it's going to get one of us caught up. I'm going to be a bit more particular in my dissertation and my articles and quote everything rather than trying to paraphrase and, and decide where my thought ends and somebody else's thought begins because then we get labeled as uppity, right? Now, now we're uppity. Now we're too good for, you know, the culture. It's, it's very no win for, for black people in a lot of ways, because had, Dr. Gay um, made a fuss about these things back in the 2000s, she would have never been the president now, right? Because she would have ostracized herself in that particular network that leads her down the path to the Harvard presidency. And I think, you know, um, the perfect example of this is what's going on with the other college presidents who also testified at that hearing that they supported free speech on their campuses, right? In the line of questioning about how the presidents were handling anti-Semitism. That's how this all gets started. And they all, because of their comments there, open themselves up to additional sort of scrutiny. President McGill, who was the president at um, University of Pennsylvania, She resigned as well um, a few weeks before Dr. Gay did, but she was able to do that of her own volition. There were no deep dives into her citation practices. There were no accusations of um, affirmative action policy. Insinuations on her character. Reason for, exactly. Um, there, There weren't questions about 
her belongingness in higher education. It was simply, you can't say that in this political environment right now when you're leading this school and as the board, you know, we're going to have to ask you to, to step down. Dr. Gay, because she was black, right, and a black woman um, more specifically, then is not only being criticized because of her comments about, you know, free speech and anti-Semitism, but now she is free game Mm -hmm. to criticize all those little pieces of the work that she has done over the last 30, 40 years that people have been waiting for. Right. And I think that that's the the difference between um, being black or brown in these uh, very historically white serving spaces and, and being white is that you can go with the flow if you want to for now. Right. And in a lot of ways, you don't always have a choice in that. But as soon as there is an opportunity to get you out of there, right? One misstep we'll pull is going exactly, exactly. Whether you, you know, engaged with the culture or not. Living Corporate is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program. It's incredible. Okay, so first off, you didn't know, Rosetta Stone is a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They have fast language acquisition, meaning you're actually going to pick up the language because it's going to provide an immersive experience for you through their program. Speech recognition gives you a trainer for your accent. Convenient, right? You can use it on your computer. You can use it on your phone. Incredible value. Lifetime membership has all languages for any and all trips or language needs in life. That's lifetime access to 25 language courses Rosetta Stone's offers for 50% off. That's a steal, y'all. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, living corporate listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com backslash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com backslash today, today. Yeah, I, 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 I genuinely think it's like really depressing, right? And, and I, w- I want to talk a little bit more though about like, just even like the function of like operating as a black woman um, in these spaces. And so there's a lot of parallels I actually see between Dr. Gay's experience at Harvard and frankly, like the uh, the chasing of the wind um, that is a lot of times pursuing ex- uh, executive level C-suite positions in corporate America, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious if you like have seen any of the, any lines of thought uh, and critique around Dr. Gay and like, this is also, obviously you are not Dr. Gay. So we're not about to, right? okay? Right. So, I, but, so I want, I'm using that as a, really more as a, like a, as a point of reference to like talk more broadly about like the space, but there's a lot of commentary around Dr. Gay being part of like this, uh, this overseer class that, um, that really was there to like reinforce um, the same principles and practices of Harvard. They mentioned, they talked, you know, in relation to like the Palestinian students who were doxxed as well as the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the black RA who was kicked out of his, was evicted out of his dorm and like no advocacy for that. And in addition, like her opinion piece, which still didn't mention any of those thousands of Palestinians that were, have been, have been killed. um, in Gaza. Uh, Part of me, when I, when I think about that, 
I question like, do we broadly as black folks, and then I'd love to hear your perspective on black women more specifically, do do we have an honest is that one, is it a fair critique? Um, and then two, like, is it reasonable to expect for black folks in ac- higher academ- high, higher ac- um, uh, academia, when they reach those really prestigious levels, to be an advocate in a way that is counter to the culture of the institutions they serve? One, I think that the critiques of Dr. Gay are warranted, right? Um But and (laughs) there is no way to reach those levels that we're talking about to become Harvard's president without reifying the same institutional racism, discrimination, structures, cultures that exist. I mean, honestly, even being a professor, this is something that that I have had to come to terms with that I know that a, a lot of uh, other faculty talk about often. I am, you know, especially now because I, I work in Texas, I work for a, a public um, state university, University of Texas at San Antonio. And in, in a lot of ways, that makes me an agent of the state, mm. right? I am uh, the program coordinator for African-American studies at UTSA, but our legislation just passed all uh, all of this uh, anti-DEI uh, stuff that has resulted in the closing of our DEI office on campus that has made my program and myself a target um, in in a lot of ways. And the the institution is trying to figure out how to handle that. Um, But I'm still going to work every day, right? I'm still, um, you know, doing the, the service of the state for these students and albeit certainly not at the, the the Harvard level, right? But there are ways that we as, you know, professors, faculty, administrators who are also people of color in higher education, you know, there may be ways for us to push against some of that existing institutional racism. And, you know, I, I think of my book as uh, one piece of that, mm-hmm. but I had to do a lot of work that wasn't that in order to get tenure. Right. Um, And, uh, and so it makes me think about this conversation makes me think about Du Bois. Right. Um, And I, I I love Du Bois and and over the last maybe five or six years, I've become um, much more interested in his life and his life's work because, you know, he is one of the sort of founding fathers of the sociology discipline, although the discipline is just now sort of (laughs) acknowledging that work. But Du Bois was also, you know, he was a a Claudine Gay-esque figure. He went to Harvard, right? right? right. Um, At a time when Black people were not being admitted to Harvard like that, right. right? And he was able to go to Harvard because he had 
white network connections that advocated for him to get into that school. Um, he was, mu- I mean, you know, there's always discussion about the relationship between Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington and, you know, the way that they sort of thought about how to uplift black communities, you know, post reconstruction in the United States where, you know, Booker T is, is, very focused on vocation, you know, Tuskegee is about teaching particular skill sets and his thought processes about um, trying not to agitate the white upper ruling classes, right, by, by trying to in- engage in the same systems that they work in, whereas Du Bois is like, no, we got to be there, right? But not all of us, right? That, that sort of talented 10th idea is very much in line with what we see today in terms of the black people that are in, you know, C-suite executive level positions, presidents at universities, right? That there is a measure of acquiescing to those systems and structures that you have to do in order to be a part of those systems. And that changes the way that you think, Right. I mean, um, a story that I love to tell my students is about uh, the marriage of Du Bois's daughter, Yvette, to County Cullen, um, who was um, known to be a gay man. Um, You know, in Harlem, he was uh, best friends with uh, Langston Hughes and um, and others. Um, And she was essentially forced to marry County because the man that she was in love with, a dark-skinned jazz musician, was not deemed by Du Bois to be a, a suitable spouse for her. And their wedding was, you know, the wedding, the event of the year in, in Harlem that year. And while it's going on, everybody is whispering, <laughs> you know, about, you know, the fact that these two people don't love each other. What, you know, what are we doing here? Right. And my students are always shocked to hear that story. They're like, oh, Du Bois? Like, and I'm like, yeah, he, you know, had some issues with colorism. He had some issues with classism that come when you move yourself up you know, into white upper class spaces. Right. And you start to, you know, buy into those things. And so I I think that, that Dr. Gay's, um, her comments, her work, her um, lack of voice around certain things is certainly critical, but not unexpected, right? Um, when you think about black folks in those in those spaces. So, so essentially, and I... And I want to make I make sure I understand like you're saying like sociologically like there's a and maybe even historist there's a historicity of uh, classism elitism um, and uh, I don't even I'm, I'm not gonna embarrass myself trying to find another word uh, within like the black, within like the black space and perhaps the W B Du Bois is like one of the like the godfathers of like the black bourgeoisie elite class right am I right okay cool right and then like also. Yeah. Also, was it W? He was also hating on um, uh, what's her name? On um, he was a sexist too. Like he was trying to squash uh, what's her name? Oh yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, are you talking about uh, Zora? Zora and um, man, Zora and well, yeah. For first of all, yes, Zora. Like, like not to skip over that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and like but he blocked women black women's voices from being published and pub, you know and like even being accepted in a higher ed you know so it's interesting like i do i think what's what's interesting about that time like post reconstruction was i think like there was actually like an upper middle and like poverty class right mm-hmm. so like not that's not justifying anything but it's curious now because i believe that like black upper class or black elites today because because economically everything is so and i'm not an economist but i'm just talking about just as like a layperson like everything is so meshed together it's constricted, it's so constricted yeah. mm-hmm. that really like the, the 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 modern black bourgeoisie elitist boule whatever their own their primary motion in talking about how they are upper class is to point to how they're not this other group of black people right, right? i mean yeah, I, I struggle. I struggle with it, Dr. Harris. I mean, so there's parts of me where I'm like, okay, like, I don't want to see black people treated, mistreated at all, like, off top. So, like, I'm never going to necessarily mm-hmm. cheer for that. At the same time, I struggle when I see people who are, like, in a certain class and or who diff, who's, who who are obviously differentiating themselves or purposely separating themselves from other black folks in in the in the service of white institutions or in the service of white power right. um mm-hmm. like and i and i said this like i well, no i didn't say this part cuz it's too much nuance to put on a, on social media people think you hate black women it's like no i'm just saying like, <laughs> like what happened to dr De- dr gay was wrong we can also honor mm-hmm. and respect that like there are plenty of black and brown students at harvard that 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 she did Absolutely. not serve as as she yes. could have right and so you know mm-hmm. But I appreciate your answer. I think like the logical follow up I have to that is if it is not really practical or um, honestly possible for historically mar- for people from historically marginalized groups to to um, ascend in white institutions without adopting um, the same behaviors and motions of said white institutions. What is your perspective on like a whole or majority uh, migration of black academics to HBCUs? I think that would take a lot of money. You know, that that's really the problem. Um, I went to Vassar uh, as an undergrad. So, you know, sort of in that same like upper class sort of thing, I went to school with like Samuel Jackson's daughter. Oh, you was stuff, Jack and right? Jill? Um, I personally was not Jack and Jill and I did not even know what Jack and Jill was until I got to college and I met all of these black Jack and Jill kids and I was like nobody told me (laughs) that this was going on right Um, you know speaking of you know this sort of space between upper class um, and you know I was more like middle middle class middle upper class uh, growing up so it wasn't exactly Jack and Jill but I think that's only because my parents hadn't heard of it and if someone had told them we probably <laughs> would have been right there um, with those folks but there is this um, how do I want to put this you can't move beyond the class system that you have access to, right? Um, And that plays out very specifically 
in higher education in terms of how those schools are funded. And I use the word funded very particularly because I'm not just talking about federal or state funds, but the way that alumni and family members fund schools, right? So Vassar has like a $3 billion endowment um, that continues to grow um, in part because Sam Jackson donated a lot of money when Zoe was there. Tom Hanks's daughter, Liz, was also in my class. He was donating a lot of money. Uh, Meryl Streep's daughter is two years behind me. And then her youngest daughter, the one that's in the Gilded Age now, she also graduated from Vassar like five years after that. Wow. So, And Meryl herself is an alumni of Vassar, so she has donated probably tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars sure. to that school in the last 30 years or so, right? Um, and so when when black faculty, and actually um, the sociology department at Vassar just hired a new uh, black man um, as assistant professor, which I was excited to see because there were no black men uh, faculty in the sociology department ever, as far as I know. Um, he may be the first one that's tenure track, uh, that's because that school can afford to pay him to go there, right? Um, I went to Vassar because I got a huge academic scholarship to go there. At the time, it was like $45,000 a year. And my, I know, my, stu <laughs> my students were like, what? What does it cost now? So we looked it up. It was like $85,000 last year, which is insane. I know. But um, but my academic scholarship was like $30,000 a year. Wow. My parents paid like $5,000 a year, and then I took like $10,000 a year out in loans. So I didn't have much student loans coming out of undergrad relative to the cost of the school. I wanted to go to Spelman. I got into Spelman. I didn't get any money to go to Spelman. And my parents were like, we cannot afford to send you there. My, my sister is the same. She went to University of Dayton in Ohio. Um, she wanted to go to Hampton. She didn't get any money to go to Hampton, right? And that's not the fault of those schools. It's the fault of the way that those schools have been funded, both internally and externally, over the last 100 years, right? And so I would love to be a, a faculty member at an HBCU, but those jobs, one, you know, are, are few and far between because often when black faculty get those jobs, they never leave them because those are the ones, you know, that they're, that they want to be in. Those are the communities that they want to be in. And two, if those jobs do come about, they often are paying 10, 15, $20,000 less a year to the faculty than, you know, a school like Vassar, for example. And so you've got this two-pronged issue where the Black students who want to go there can't afford to go there because the schools can't afford to support them going there. And so they end up at PWIs. And the Black faculty who want to teach there can't afford to teach there because, you know, we know what's going on with the economy right now, and that's only getting worse. And so they end up at PWIs. And so instead, what you have are a few black students and a few black faculty sprinkled across PWIs across the United States and most not being able to participate and engage in the HBC 
community the way that they would want to, right? And so it's like a pipe dream. You know, when, when folks say, and and this would, would happen to me as well, and I'm probably expecting this backlash when the book comes out next week, but folks are like, well, if you had such a terrible time at the PWI, why didn't you just go to an HBCU? And it's like, again, it's systemic, right? It is not... I didn't want to be at a school with black people. I wanted to be at a school with white people. And so I deserve the things that happened to me there. It was the way that the system is set up. This was my best option, right? I mean, and if we think about Claudine Gay as well, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know her sort of personal history, but I do know that she is a a Harvard undergrad alum as well, right? And as a black girl in the late 80s, early 90s, getting accepted and financially supported to attend Harvard is not an opportunity that you can pass up, right? And that's why we're fighting about all of these schools in the first place, because those schools have the networks, they have the money to attract and bring in those black students, right? But when we get there, there is an expectation, that we assimilate, that we, you know, acculturate into their their system. And some people are able to keep those pieces of themselves separate, right? And sort of engage in performance. And I actually talk about this a lot in the book, the, the sort of exhaustive nature of having to do that performance and then being able to go home with your family and, and, and be a a little bit more normal. Um, but, but you sort of have to do that unless you are willing and able to, to do the alternative, which is, you know, be in that HBCU environment. It just, and, and we've lost so many HBCUs and, and so many HBCUs have lost accreditation. I know a few years ago, Morris Brown was asking alumni with PhDs to teach courses for free on a volunteer basis. And I know they just got their accreditation back. Like that was a huge, they just got it back. That was a huge deal. I mean, Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with EstroControl from Happy Mammoth. EstroControl contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including EstroControl. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. So let, let me ask you this, and then I'm, you know, I, I want to respect your time. I feel like we could, because there's a part of me. We could do this Yeah, I was day. like, pardon me, but yeah. I'm going to hour, but I, but I respect your time. So... Okay. You know, I'm curious, being that you're a trained sociologist, um, 
and you and you mentioned in your book the the uh, the exhaustion exasperation of um, acculturation pressures of acculturationists and and, uh, and assimilation into these white majority white spaces um, or even just eurocentric spaces whatever um, I'm curious as you look at like the future of like black and brown com- people social like sociologically like do you think that like young millennials and Gen Zers have the um, wherewithal, stamina, wilf- willingness, um, interest to really do that over time? Because, like, I don't. Like, I, I, I say that as... <laughs> I say that... I say that as a 34-year-old. I say that as a 34-year-old who um, was working at PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, Capgemini, mm-hmm. um, and was so... was getting... was pissed off at how I was being treated built my own company while I was still working crazy hours and then built that up to the point where I could just leave and do this full time, which is now living corporate. Right. Um, but I also say it as a, a, a big brother to a bunch of Gen Zers. And I say that as a father to two toddlers who I can already tell are not going to, <laughs> they're not going to take they're not gonna do this shit at all. Dr. I'm telling you, they're not. So, but, I, but, but that's me though. Like I'd love to hear your expert perspective on it. I just, I feel as if we're going to get to some point where where we're go- we're coming to a breaking point, um, and that's not to diminish the impact or uh, power of your book at all. It's more about mm-hmm. I'm asking like, do we really see this whole this system that we're talking about existing and sustaining over the next forty fifty years? Um, I hear what you're saying, and my students say this kind of stuff to me you know, all the time. Like, what is, what is the point? You know, why why are we sort of continuing to engage in this society that clearly doesn't want us to succeed, be successful and and all of that? Um, And it's interesting because I, one thing that I used to always say to my students before I wrote this book was, I don't have answers. I'm here with the data. (laughs) And I'm going to give you, you know, the theory and the data and the statistics, and then you do with it what you will. Um, And as I was writing the book, I started to have those same questions. Like, what the hell am I doing? You know, like, I'm crying as I'm writing this stuff. Like, this is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like, maybe I have, you know, really messed my life up, you know, messed myself up internally by trying to participate in and be accepted into these systems. And the final chapter of the book is actually called Benediction. Um, And it's really all about like hope and, and faith. And, and I realized that if I didn't have faith that there was some way forward, a better way forward for black people in higher education specifically, but, you know, in American society more broadly, I couldn't go on, right? I couldn't, I couldn't continue to show up in class every day and teach students and ask them, you know, to do assignments and, and do homework and to engage in critical thought, you know, in the way that we do in my classes. Um, and that faith is connected to a hope that these generations coming behind us 
are stronger, angrier, you know, more willing to tear things down than we have been. And, you know, I'm a millennial, I'm 40. And admittedly, and I, and I say this to, to folks all the time, we, we're not the fighting generation. <laughs> like that, that was not what we did. We were told this is how you, you know, become a successful professional adult. You do that, you focus on that, right? And that is what we did. I mean, I even remember I started, my freshman year of college was um, 9-11, literally, like, you know, two weeks into my freshman year of college, 9-11 happens. And there were no protests on my campus. You know, there were no, um, there's there was no um, ensuing anger about the sort of political and military response of, you know, the United States. And, and I do remember seeing people protesting, um, you know, in, in the streets in New York and Chicago and so, but, but that wasn't happening on college campuses, especially not college campuses of like a bunch of upper class wealthy, mostly white folks, right. like at a school like Vassar, right? And so what the folks in my generation did was we just took it. And we we took the trauma, we took the violence, we let it happen to us with the expectation that if we made it far enough, then we would be accepted, right? And that's what makes me not necessarily like side quote unquote with Dr. Gay, but to understand what has happened to her. And even in her op-ed, you know, her unwillingness to, to talk about the experiences of the black and brown folks on her campus, because she's still grappling with the fact that this happened to her, Mm. right? Because in her mind, she's like, I did everything that Harvard, that, upper class America, that white America asked me to do to be able to belong in settings like this. And I still got treated like any other black person. I mean, and how do I deal with that? Right. She needs to listen to that, that Jay-Z song. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Still black. Still Listen. Black. <laughs> OJ uh, needs to yeah, as well. Right? I'm not black. I'm OJ. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, even, I mean, we saw Tiger Woods recently right. talk about this stuff, right? Who was famously, like, I'm, you know, I'm call me Asian or whatever it is. And at the time, we were just like, well, that's kind of weird, but I guess, okay, you know, we're just let him do what he wants to do. He's right? really good at golf, in, so in hindsight, it's weird. Exactly. So we'll just let it go. Right. But in hindsight, it's like, we should have called that stupid 30 years ago, right? right? And we just let it go because we were all being socialized in this sort of um, Cosby show, Huxable-esque. And as someone who, you know, was an ardent watcher of the Cosby show, I used to have all the, I still have them, I just haven't opened them in years, but all the the seasons on DVD, Mm -hmm. right? We, black people in particular, especially middle-class, upper-class black people, through the mid 80s, 90s, and and early 2000s were socialized to believe that if you, it's that respectability politics stuff, right? If you just got the right education, talked right, dressed right, Mm -hmm. raised your children right, then you could be 
upper middle class. You could own a brownstone in New York City. You could have your own uh, doctoral practice, right? You could you know, be a partner at a law firm and white people would accept you. And, you know, you'd never have to experience any of the, the racism of the past. Mm-hmm. And I think what the the Gen Z and Gen A generations are recognizing is all that was bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if you we're allowed to swear. I said nigga, so yeah, <laughs> but, you go ahead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be careful about uh, my language. Um, but that, that that's not reality, right? Yeah. And that they look at us and say, y'all were duped. You know, they they told you to do that and you just did it. And now look at you. You're not any, you know, better off than any of the rest of us. And so my hope, right, is that as long as I continue to put that information out there, as long as I continue to teach, you know, what institutional racism is, what systemic racism is, that these coming generations with more access to information, with more access to history, right, uh, well, you know, Republicans are trying to prevent yeah, that, but in theory, it's hard to do right. You know, um, with all of the the ways that you can access information these days, that they will be the ones to say this doesn't work. And if one generation can pull down a couple of bricks, and the next generation can pull down a couple of bricks, and at least we're heading in the direction of destroying these practices right and and if i don't have that hope and if i don't have that faith then why am i going to class you know why am i teaching why am i in this profession um why am i writing these books so dr harris um this has been a phenomenal conversation thank you so much for coming um the name of the book is black women ivory tower revealing the lies of white supremacy in american education again the author's name is Dr. Jasmine L. Harris. Dr. Harris, we can see you're a friend of the show. Can't wait. Keep in touch. Make sure to have you back. Yes. And we will talk soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much for listening to Living Corporate. You know where we at. We're everywhere you listen to podcasts. You know what I'm saying? We're literally everywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Corporate, living-corporate, please say the dash.com or just Google Living Corporate. You know what I'm saying? At this point, SEO is pretty popping. You type in Living Corporate, we're going to pop up somewhere. Okay? Make sure you check us out. Links in the show notes. You learn more about us. Learn what we're trying to do. Make sure you actually create a profile on living-corporate.com. Okay? Make a profile on there so you can actually... Stay in tune and up to date with what we got going on. You make a profile, you select content that you're really interested in, and then we'll push content to you from our library. So you can actually have a curated experience every time you go and log into Living Corporate. Ain't that dope? Okay. Think about that. We got over a thousand podcasts and and different digital media and content that we've made over the years. And it's going to be all pushed and curated for you, baby. For you, dog. For you. All right. Till next time. I love you. Take care of yourself. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? 
Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.